You open up your bag of specialty coffee. You weigh, grind, and the aroma blows your mind. Your brew goes perfectly, but uh uh-oh. What went wrong? Your water, that's what. Third Wave Water helps give that cafe-quality experience at home, unlocking all the bright flavors your coffee has to offer. Just add one stick of minerals to a gallon of distilled water to upgrade your coffee experience. Visit thirdwavewater.com and use coupon code COFFEEPODCAST for 10% off your first order. You're listening to The Coffee Podcast. I'm Jesse Hartman. If you drink specialty coffee, it is extremely likely that your coffee was hand-picked by one or more coffee pickers. These are people who cherry by coffee cherry pick carefully the right cherry at the right ripeness for the optimum flavor in your cup. Let's just take a moment to pause and think about how meticulous and manual this process is. This episode is part one of two parts, an interview with Marianella Beas-Jost. She is a coffee producer, a Farmers Project founder, an exporter, an importer. She sits on the board of directors for the International Women's Coffee Alliance, and she most recently also sits on the board of directors for Heifer International. Let's get started by hearing her story. My coffee journey really started just kind of pursuing a personal dream. I was born in Costa Rica and uh, I came to the United States as an exchange student. Since I was very young, I I wanted to learn English. That was like my biggest goal in life. <laughs> I was able to obtain a scholarship and be an exchange student in Nebraska of all places. And I actually fell in love with the people there and with the culture and ended up going to the University of Nebraska. And that's where I met my husband. And um, that decision totally changed the path of my life. So I ended up in the States and working in business, usually different industries. And just after 20 plus years of that, uh, my husband and I always wanted to do something out of the box. And we thought, hmm, coffee. What about coffee? Maybe we can continue to have the Costa Rica and United States connection through coffee. We can farm and then we can sell it in the United States. And we were 100% naive about it. Um, <laughs> I am ashamed to confess that I was your like Friday morning a Starbucks drinker. <laughs> I didn't no know shame, anything no about shame. coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I was proud, always proud to come from a co- from a country that is a great producer. So that was about it for me. But mm-hmm. um, so my relationship with coffee started from, you know, we cashed out and we sold everything we had. We bought a coffee farm. We moved to Costa Rica and literally started from the ground up. That's how I started my relationship with coffee. And that was back in 2013. I assume there were already trees planted, already trees maybe to even harvest. Is that the case? or When we purchased the farm, um, about 30% of the farm had been replanted. So we got there and the okay. coffee was not didn't even get to our knees. And I'm pretty short. <laughs> okay. So okay. That, that tells you it was baby <laughs> coffee. And then the rest, we really had to replace a lot, but we couldn't do it right away. Otherwise, we would have no harvest. And so we started little by little 
to replenish the worst plants, the most tired, the oldest, and also choosing, learning a little bit about the varietals that we wanted to plant. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we had a whole lot of learning to do. And, and we were very lucky that from the start, um, one of my sisters knew, uh, one of her friends is a Rainforest Alliance auditor. He's an agronomist, has okay. uh, been in a, in a coffee family for generations. He's the person that helped us look for the right farm. And he was our teacher, our mentor, and as an agronomist, our mathematician and scientist. And um, the other, uh, the second lucky strike we had was when we purchased the farm. The first day we arrived there, there was a man waiting for us by the gate. How did he know we were arriving? I don't know yet. I never asked him really, (laughs) but uh, his (laughs) name is Chevo. And he said, I've been working in this farm for eight years and uh, I heard you guys bought it. I would like to continue to work here. And we almost wanted to kneel down and say, please, please, because we don't even know the boundaries of our own farm. Oh, Uh, yeah. So we got really lucky. We got an empirical and a very practical mentor right away. And those were our two teachers from the start. Without them, I don't know how we would have um, done things really. Wow. So it sounds like in the early days, the big challenges were trying to capture what you could from the upcoming harvest and then having to switch out trees or I guess partial renovation, not like full renovation. You were renovating where you could. Is that kind of the idea behind all that? Well, when we got there, we we really didn't have a, a plan for for how were we going to farm. It was a huge adventure for us to, you know, I was going back to a country I hadn't lived in for over 20 years. I mean, when I left, I was 18 and, and I, I had never worked in Costa Rica. So I didn't know the ins and outs of, of the bureaucracy, of the systems. There were a lot of things we didn't even think about that we had to face. I would say the biggest challenge at the farm was when we got there, there was a bodega, which is like a shed, but it's a cement shed. And, um, we thought that was just putting some tools and store something. And Chevo said, this is where the pickers stay. And we're like, what? And, I mean, we wouldn't even let our dog in there. Hmm. There were mice. It was filthy. It had all kinds of old stuff piled up. And we're like, where do they sleep? And it's like, oh, they just clean up a corner on the ground and sleep on the cement. And we're like, oh, my God, this is... We couldn't believe it. So we arrived in Costa Rica and it was July. So the winter, the rainy season is in. And we're like, well, we have to rebuild. We got to we gotta do something. And uh, Adriana, our, our agronomist, is like, you're crazy if you think you're going to be starting a construction in the rainy season. And especially my, my farm, Café Con Amor, is still off grid. We have no electricity. And, oh, okay. Um, Hmm. And the road in is 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 a four by four uh, only road, and we're like, nope, we're not gonna let the pickers come in in the harvest and sleep like like animals. Are you? And so that was our first challenge that we didn't even know we were going to have. It took us uh, the whole winter. I'm happy to say that in December, when the pickers arrived, they were coming down the little road and they saw the casita, and they all looked at each other as this the same farm. <laughs> 
and we we welcomed them with a big smile. And it was a whole welcome ceremony for us because it was the first time we were meeting them, and they had been coming to that farm for many years too. And here's the gringo. My husband is Nebraskan, and as white as they come, and the yeah. Dika, and they're like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, he, he's probably the type to eat uh, cinnamon rolls with chili, right? <laughs> yeah. I know those types. <laughs> yes, and uh, yeah, and we both, our last job before we we left to, you know, to establish ourselves at the farm, uh, we both worked for Florida State University, and so oh, okay. um, we did like an orientation. We had welcome package for the the the, the pickers. We had a uh, welcome gifts because we knew that they had nothing they, that they come with nothing. So um, hmm. they probably thought this people are crazy, right? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things we started learning the first year. The plants and the agriculture, you just kind of dance with nature, you know? You have to. You you can't just go in there and start with a white canvas. I mean, we did start with a green canvas, but it was little by little. Uh, yeah. And uh, we were following the advice of those who knew. And, and if we had to do it again, I would say we should have waited one more year to let the other plants that were replanted be a little bit more established because our first year of harvest was almost nothing. And in hmm. our first three years, we put more money in the farm that we never thought, you know, that, that we hadn't planned. So our budget uh, was really, really tight because we were going from savings, you know. So okay. yeah. um, those were some of the challenges uh, at the beginning. Yeah, those are not small challenges. And your first harvest, uh, and you would have to figure out how to sell your coffee? Did you plug right into whatever systems were already in place with the previous farm? The, the systems in place, Jesse, are unfortunately very old colonial systems. Um, you just... Mm. Uh, pick the fruit and, and give it to the local co-op. Uh, local uh, co-ops compete for your coffee because, you know, there's more and, and more need and more more demand for better coffee. So they set up uh, receiving stations, they receive it orders and, and you just take it there. And you just, um, that's one of the issues with the specialty coffee because if you invest in planting great varietals, invest in doing all the right things at the farming level and then picking perfectly ripe coffee and then you end up taking it to the receiving station. It's a heartbreak moment to see when you're backing up your little truck or your cart with your coffee that looks like beautiful red cherries and they just dump it into this humongous tank where yeah. there's green, yellow, black, everything. And that's where the disappointment and heartbreak starts with many of the producers because it's like, why did I kill myself for that? Because I'm going to get paid pretty much what everybody else got paid, you know? Yeah, you get mixed right into, who, you know, other other producers who don't care about quality or or maybe it's not that they don't care, but they're not showing the same meticulous effort that maybe you are. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. It, it just really, um, it doesn't motivate anybody to do better, right? Okay. So yeah, sure. that's, that's the issue. But the first year for us, um, I have to say, I almost cried every day, <laughs> yeah. almost every day, because there were so many things that were unexpected. We we felt like we were blindsided all the time because we started to learn a different side of 
of the face of coffee. We we went there with this adventure, romantic idea of chasing a dream that seemed beautiful from the outside because coffee has got so many romantic, beautiful things about it. And then when we get into it, you know, we start seeing issues like that. How can you have people come and stay and sleep on the ground in, in a place that is filthy? and expect that they're going to work and do the job, you know, without any tools or any, not even a good night of sleep or even a blanket, you know? So mm. things like that, you're like, how how is this happening? And then when we went to the receiving station with our coffee, maybe the second day we had somebody from the co-op say, hey, we see you're doing a specialty coffee. Yeah, they can see it from the way you're picking it. And uh, oh, okay. they yeah. said, um, you can take it to the main uh, to the co-op facilities and uh, talk to such and such person and they'll give you a differential. And we're like, oh, wow. I mean, my husband and I felt like, oh, we won a prize already because they <laughs> they can tell we're really doing a great job with picking, you know, and the main facilities were about 45 minutes away from our farm. And we would take the trip after picking all day, we would drive from there out of the farm, 4 p.m., go there and then stand in line to dump your coffee in the one lane that was for specialty coffee. Sometimes we wouldn't even get out of there until eight o'clock at night. Mm. And, uh, we took that trip every day through the first harvest. And then when wow. pay time came, nothing, nothing, nothing. And we kept on following up and following up, three months of following up, and we never received one nope. penny of differential. Oh, and no. we said, hold on one second. If they're willing and able to do that, I'm not saying this as thinking that I'm a better person or a bigger person. But I'm an educated person. I speak two languages. I know technology. I've lived in different countries. And I knew the presence of that uh, co-op from being introduced by our agronomist as, hey, this is Mary and Ellen Jonathan. They just came from the United States, and they're starting mm-hmm. to get into coffee farming. So I had a little tiny status, right? And yeah. they're willing to cheat us in that way. So I you thought, never saw you never saw that money? No, no, never. And oh, uh, so if they were willing to cheat us in that way, I thought, what are they doing to the producers that have no voice whatsoever? What's going on here? So we were told all kinds of stories. Oh, that our coffee was going to be sold to Germany, but then the contract fell. And so they didn't have anybody to sell it. It was too late. So they just had to sell it like sea market prices. So sorry. That was the excuse. That was it. Mm. So all oh, that effort man. and we got cheated. Okay. And I don't want to turn this into a dark podcast, but I do want <laughs> to tell the truth because yeah, I think it's we important want the truth. for yeah, people to know the truth. the truth of what happens at origin. So in this same co-op, we told them, okay, well, we want you from this harvest, what we have brought in if you can prepare about a hundred samples for us, because we are establishing connections with the United States and we want to export our coffee. Again, us being honest and naive, we said that, okay? So we get the hundred hundred plus samples and they put them in little baggies, kind of like a coffee bag that you don't, you know, you don't see through, right? The Mm -hmm. material. We put our labels on them and then we flew to United States for Thanksgiving. We're super excited. We had 
been working our butts off with bad internet and bad phone connections, sending emails to everyone that we could think of and coffee shops that we didn't even know, telling them, are you interested in samples? We're farming Costa Rica. Here's some pictures. I mean, all kinds of Mm, cold calling for over a year. And we send all these samples out, spend a whole bunch of money sending, mailing the samples. When we were flying back to Costa Rica, we get a phone call from a person that is a friend of ours because we'll never forget him and, and, and always will be thankful to him. His name is Chris. He said, Jonathan, did you guys look at your samples? And we're like, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, did you open one of your samples? And we're like, no, we just send them to everybody. And he said, if I didn't meet you face to face, because he was one of the few that we met face to face, he said, I would have thrown that shit in the garbage. And, oh, no. And we're like, what? And, and he's like, do you have more samples? And we're like, yeah, we have some. And we had them in our suitcase. And I like, open it up. We open it up. And they literally had given us the leftovers of the leftovers of crap. And that's what they put in our samples. Oh, no. To totally ruin our ability to do direct trade, Jesse. That's the reality of coffee. That's what a lot of producers have to deal with. And I wasn't going to go down quiet. And I told my husband, I think we got to go back and we're going to go and face the president. We're going to ask for a meeting, face the president of the co-op and their quality person was who is a Q grader. Of course, if we said what we were going to go for, we would never get a meeting. So I uh, sent, I actually sent a text to the Q grader and said, hey, we had some great meetings in the United States and we have some really interested uh, customers, but we need more coffee because our farm is small. So we would need to get more coffee from you guys. Is it possible to have a meeting? And of course, they rolled out the red carpet for, right, for yeah, us, right? Yeah. <laughs> So we brought a bag with the samples that we had left over, three pairs of scissors. We sat at the table at this big conference room, and here comes Mr. President. And we're like, hi, how are you? I opened the bag. I gave him a sample and the scissors, and the Q-grader's hands started shaking so bad he could not control them. Mm. He knew exactly what was happening. And he looked at the guy, at the president. They both looked at each other. And I said, would you open the sample, please? And put it on the table. And they open it. And all the crap comes out, all this. And I just said, why would you do that? And the guy, the the president, he threw the curator under the bus and started chewing him out and screaming at him like he didn't know anything. And the guy just lowered his head because he was his boss. Mm-hmm. We never got an apology. We got up and we said goodbye. That was wow. that was our introduction to coffee in the first year. In our introduction of trying to sell coffee the first year. Needless to say, that's why I cried about every day. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have been crying every day myself. I that's a horrendous experience. Yes. And embarrassing for me too because I am from Costa Rica and I had a hard time explaining to my husband how can people be so corrupt to this mm. day it hurts a lot. Yeah, we're wronged. And it's sad, like you said, because how many other producers are wrong like this all the time? Yeah. Um, and they can never say anything and they are 
tied up to the co-ops. And don't get me wrong, there are co-ops that work honestly and are good for for many towns and, and many producers. But people need to understand that the, the co-op mentality and philosophy is very good on paper, but unfortunately greed creeps in into so many different systems and, and bureaucracy creeps in. And that's what has happened in many of the co-ops in, in coffee because it's a power game and it's a volume mm. game and it's a C market game. And so at the end of the day, the producer, the very small producer is the one that gets the short end of the stick. Yeah. And the co-ops end, end up operating like a credit card with no end. The producer, mm. the small producer doesn't have enough financing, but guess what? The co-op says, you bring us your harvest, we give you financing. So it's a cycle they can never get out of because by the time you're starting to harvest, you already owe the whole year of inputs. So you got to pay that bill. You cannot mm. do anything. You have no freedom with your harvest because you owe it to the co-op. I know? see. And that yeah. cycle is, is extremely hard to break. And how did y'all end up breaking that cycle? Did you just never go back to the co-op? How did you end well, up we, selling? See, I consider myself a lucky producer because I do it by choice. We had savings. We had lifetime of work that we cashed mm. in to go into this adventure. And to, in, and to this day, if I decide I don't want to work in coffee anymore, I have choices. I can do it, you know. Mm. But the producers, the majority, there are producers by destiny, be it because, you know, it's a family duty or it's a, you're geographically uh, tied up to, to certain boundaries because, you know, you don't know how to drive. You don't have a car. You've three generations of your family have lived up in that side of the mountain and that's all mm. you know how to do. So I would say the majority of producers are doing it because they don't have a better choice because nowadays who in the right mind, and I think that that's a lot of why many of our neighbor farmers looked at us like who in their right mind would actually get into coffee into investing in buying a, a farm and investing mm. in the starting a farm. Yeah. So you're saying your neighbors, your neighbor farmers were looking at you like, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Many people okay. were skeptical because they thought, are they like missionaries or are they like here for some kind of a long stay adventure vacation thing okay or what? like ulterior motive kind yeah. of thing they didn't think you were really in it for the coffee because of why would you be based yeah. on their experience yeah. okay and wow. also they thought that oh well they'll come in and just hire a whole bunch of people to do their work and they'll come around and, and stroll around their plantation or something <laughs> whatever and well first of all it's a small farm and second yeah when they saw us actually being part of the builders of the casita and getting dirty every day and coming out and, and picking with the pickers, they're like, oh, they're actually a real deal. They're working their butts off. And then hmm. we gained their trust like that because they would they would see we were normal, hardworking people that were, you know, in it for the love, for the good reasons and for the long run. So tell me this. You said you could get out of it if you wanted to. Why didn't you? Why didn't you just quit? after that year of heartache and being wrong so so terribly? Why didn't y'all just jump out? I would say that experience uh, made my husband and I like, it, it was fuel to the fire. It was like, I am going to prove you wrong 
And I am going to, if we both just dug in our heels and said, we are going to get it done. We're going to be, we're going to do direct trade. We had so many people that uh, tried to be sharks and tried to roll out the, the red carpet. And when we said, no, no, we want to do real direct trade. They're like, oh, you're not going to be able to. So the first, the first thing is you got a small farm. You can't do it. Everybody was like not motivating at all. And we're mm. like, we, we, yeah. We love a challenge and we're both hardworking, disciplined people. And we were like, we're going to get it done. So it was, yeah, we, we used adversity to, to fuel our desire to succeed. And actually our desire to succeed fueled the possibility to help other farmers and start Farmers Project. Nice. Yeah. I was going to ask you if that was how the Farmers Project was uh, initialized. It sounds like it was. Well, yeah. In order for us to learn about coffee, we realized that there were a lot of agronomists that were willing to go to the farm and sell you products because a lot of the agronomists don't live off of consulting at farms. They actually live a full-time jobs with agrochemical companies, and then they do some consulting on the side, okay? Mm, okay. There's also the CAFE, which is the Institute of Coffee that um, is a government organization that kind of regulates coffee in Costa Rica. And they also have agronomists. And so people are always like, hey, anytime you want us to come to your farm and give you some advice, you hear that a lot. And so we took advantage of that and said, well, uh, sure, why don't you come and talk to us about your products and about the good, the bad, and the ugly of your products, the application, the process, whatever education. And then we would invite farmers to come to either the casita at the coffee farm because we didn't live on the farm or to the house by the by the cost farm. And we had like classes, even PowerPoints that out of, you know, we would put a sheet yeah. up and the engineers would bring their computer and put a, a PowerPoint. And, and we started to meet other farmers and we started to share more and learn more. And, mm. and that really created the opportunity to, to build relationships. When we said to ourselves, we're going to achieve direct trade, yes, the first challenge is you have to have enough for a container of coffee. Otherwise, the economics don't work. Okay. And so our farm at that time, we only had like 3,000 pounds and you need about 40,000. <laughs> so you were, you were a little short of a container. Just a little. Just a little. So, <laughs> yeah. so one of the times that we hosted a, a meeting at our, uh, at our house, we uh, said, okay, uh, we also want to introduce you to an idea that we have. And this is what we like to do. And we told them, and I could say this because obviously I'm from Costa Rica. I said, um, we're going to do direct trade 100%. We're going to figure it out. We don't know it yet, but we're going to figure it out. But we have some connections in the United States and we need to work and we want to work under the philosophy of teamwork, honesty, doing quality, long-term and the American way, we're not going to do mañana, mañana, okay? And, there, you know, that's why I could say this, because it's, <laughs> the American way is you deliver what you promise. And so anybody in. <laughs> and we had about 12 farmers there, and two people were actually the ones that ended up joining us at that time. Oh, wow. Um, 
What's interesting, it wasn't because um, people are like, oh, no, we don't believe in it. It was uh, some some different reasons. Um, one, which is huge, and a lot of people don't consider why is it that small farmers cannot do direct trade. It is because of what I mentioned before about being on a credit cycle. When you come to harvest in December, every farmer is like down to the last penny, okay? Because you've been putting whatever money you have in your inputs and in your labor. And here comes harvest. And the first week you start picking, you get paid on Saturday by the co-op. Every Saturday, you're going to get your little, is a little ticket. You go cash it in and you get your money. And every small farmer is looking for that payday. It's It's an annual payday during December, January, and February, right? What happens is if you already owe to the co-op, obviously you're going to have to give it back to the co-op and end up with just the little extra you can make. So when you do direct trade in December, January, and February, you are picking coffee, but then you have to process that coffee that takes money. Then you have to dry it and then you have to store it and the storage for the resting of the coffee is about 45 days. Mm, okay. um, so that puts you out to about April and then you have to prepare for export. So you have to do all the process of the paperwork and the shipping and the logistics and the sacks and the grain pros and the printing and all that stuff that takes you to, hey, we're going to export about May. And then the ship is going to get to the United States in June and July. And your coffee is going to be delivered to your customers across the United States July, August, September, as they're taking it, that's Mm. when you start seeing money. So all of a sudden, your cycle, you need to have finances to survive and to put food on your table from harvest until August. Many people cannot even fathom. They don't know what they would do. You know, so that's Mm. number one reason why a lot of the small farmers cannot go into direct trade. And the other one is many people are very, very focused on what's the price? What am I going to get? And at that point in time, we were going on faith and hope that the connections we were making in the United States, that those people that we actually got the good samples to, because obviously we had to redo all that, were going to be willing to pay very good prices to make it worth it. But we couldn't tell people what those prices were because we were just starting. And the other thing we said is we're not buying your coffee. We're all in it. Everybody's responsible for their farm. Everybody's responsible for their micro lots. You know, everybody sets the price of their coffee and it's based on quality, really. And, you know, so we all share the risk. We all share the reward. And Mm. uh, a lot of people, that's not something they're willing to do because we had somebody, well, not, not somebody, actually two or three people that said, well, I got people that come to my farm and if they're going to buy right there out of my farm and they offer me four bucks and you're telling me you don't know, but maybe it's four bucks. I'm just going to sell it to the safe one right there, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, well, thank you for telling us. We can't do that because we're going to deliver what we promise. And if we go that way, it's not going to work. You know, you can't commit. And then, you know, when the customer pay said, well, sorry, I don't have that coffee. I have something else or I don't have any coffee. That would be Mm -hmm. the worst things. Well, that completes our first episode with Marianella. Be sure to stay tuned for the next episode, which will be released very soon, as in as soon as next week. If you'd like to reach Marianella, I'm going to include some contact information inside the show notes. So be sure to go and check those out and just, you know, stay tuned for what's brewing over here at the Coffee Podcast. You might be thinking, where you been, Jesse? And 
I would say underwater. <laughs> Just kidding, not kidding. And for those of you going to SCA Expo, and I think London Coffee Festival is also around the corner, there's a lot of stuff going on. I'm not at any of it this year, but I, you know, I hope you get the chance to listen to this during your travels. So uh, reach out to, to us at um, the, <laughs> on our website and stuff. Uh, and don't worry, we'll have more clear directions and avenues for communication in the coming weeks. Well, for now, as always, and until next time, happy brewing.